70% of employees say that their manager has a huge impact on their mental health. And we have to appreciate that or else we're going to probably not purposefully negatively impact the well-being of the people we leave. Are you ready to reinvent your organization and create a workplace of the future? Welcome to the Optimized Workplace. My name is Fran Dean Bishop, and I'm the founder and CEO of Aerobody. Join me each week as I welcome innovators, A-listers, and trailblazers who will share their individual experiences with creating an optimized workplace. This podcast will inspire you to find new and unique ways of helping your organization thrive while providing an exceptional experience for your employees and nourishing their well-being. Ready to get started? Learn more at theoptimizedworkplace.co. Welcome to The Optimized Workplace. I'm your host, Fran Dean Bishop, where our discussions with influencers, experts, and innovators are helping transform the well-being and sustainability of today's workplaces and spaces. Today, I have the pleasure of welcoming Dr. Richard Safer, who currently serves as the Chief Medical Director of Health and Well-Being for John Hopkins Medicine, where he leads health and well-being strategy. Dr. Safer is a workplace health pioneer and has assessed cultures, trained leaders, and conducted and explored research on the intersectionality of individual and organizational behavior. Previously, he served as the medical director of preventative medicine for Care First Blue Cross Blue Shield in Baltimore, Maryland. And just recently, which I'm super excited about, and this discussion, Dr. Safer released the publication, A Cure for the Common Company. I love that title. A Cure for the Common Company, a well-being prescription for a happier, healthier, and more resilient workforce. Welcome, Dr. Safer. Thank you, Fran. And let me tell you that the name of your podcast, The Optimized Workplace, is spot on with the, what I'm trying to do. So it's been I'm thrilled to have been invited. Thank you. Oh, absolutely. I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled with everything that you're doing. So I'm, I was looking forward to this conversation. I, I kept saying to myself, he better not cancel. He better not cancel. <laughs> <laughs> so this is fantastic. Very, very rarely. I just came from a, um, came across town. I'm in Washington, D.C., full disclosure. And I just came across town from a very interesting um, uh, luncheon meetup that was all about how art is used um, in in construction and architecture in the built environment to evoke engagement and well-being. And very rarely do I get a chance to talk to people who are really in the space and that are really doing the work and are game changers and thought leaders. And so I think with this book that you just released, this is a, a perfect example of that. You really are trying to shake things up and have people think a little bit differently. So, you know, here at the Optimized Workplace, we talk a lot about trends and initiatives, sustainable culture, healthy cultures in the built environment. And especially now when you see all the things that are happening around the remote workforce and hybrid workforce, I was reading something on about um, how, um, uh, what is it, uh, Chick-fil-A is allowing their employees to work, you know, 13, 14 hour days, but they get two days off a week or something crazy. I mean, it's just, there's so many different evolutions on what we're calling the new norm of the workplace. I'm so curious from your perspective, you know, what are you most excited about when it comes to employers really redesigning um, and really co-creating this healthy well-being workspace? 
So Fran, I'm just up the road uh, from you. I'm in Baltimore, Maryland. That's where our main campus is. So not too far. Maybe we'll go to one of those luncheons together one day. Uh, I actually, Fran, am pretty excited about the sustainability of the basic human needs. You talked about trends. You talked about initiatives. You talked about the changing landscape because of the pandemic and how it's influenced different work aspects. At the end of the day, we are still humans and we still have some basic needs and we're influenced in some very basic ways, ways that are often looked by organizations. So one thing, uh, for example, Fran, is peer support. We are all influenced by the behaviors and the attitudes and the beliefs of the people we work with, both for better and for worse. Fran, if you and I go out for a lunch and uh, I order a salad and I order first, in all likelihood, you're going to be influenced by my purchase. And the same could be said the other way. If I order a burger, you may have been thinking of ordering that salad, but you know what? That may be all you needed to convince you to get that burger. And so even something as simple as how our coworkers are behaving uh, can influence our well-being. And I think it's time to get back to the basics. We're, we're always trying to put this program in place and that. Listen, there's nothing wrong with programs. And in fact, programs can be very helpful, but there's this underlying culture across the organization that really needs to be addressed in order for every employee to feel supported on their own well-being journey. Oh my gosh. I think you and I are going to become fast friends. <laughs> but not but fast not over a burger. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, because you've seen it too. Like I've been in the industry. I try not yeah. to look like it, but I've been in the industry for you know a couple of decades. And people always say, well, what's the best program? Or, you know, how would you, you, you know, you, you um approach XXX, but it's, I mean, I can program you to death, right? We could together, we could probably come up with a thousand programs, but I love what you just mentioned about peer support. And I want you to say a little bit more about that. Mm -hmm. My husband is is a, happens to be a first responder firefighter, and he actually is on a peer support team supporting other firefighters who have dealt with challenges, PTSD, what have you in that space. So can you talk more about because I think this is an, a phenomenal yeah. piece you bring up, the peer support when it comes to the corporate or the work environment. Yeah, well, it sounds like your husband, and by the way, thank him for his service. I appreciate uh, what he's bringing to the community. I had not enough credit. Thank you. You're welcome. Fran, it sounds like what your husband's doing is providing possibly, um, so in some places it's called psychological first aid uh, maybe he was um, intentionally trained by the um, fire station or the um, district in which he works. And this is this is a peer support strategy. We have something similar in healthcare. Uh, we have RISE um, teams. RISE stands for Resilience in Stressful Events. Similar in firefighting, there are stressful things that happen in healthcare. And it's important that there are peers who are trained in how to address acute mental health stressors because sometimes people in our workforce need help right away. They Mm -hmm. can't wait a week to get into a psychologist. They can't wait a month to get into a psychiatrist. And sometimes it's particularly helpful 
to debrief these stressful events with a peer who's been there, who's had a similar experience. It creates that bond to have that common uh, that common background that may make it easier for the individual to get through that moment. Mm. Wow, that's a lot to unpack. So can you break that down for us a little bit, Rich? You said it's okay for me to call him Rich, everyone. Yeah, yes. Said, right. So <laughs> yes, he's the doctor, but he said I can call him Rich. So Rich, can you break that down a little bit? So a lot of our listeners obviously are not in the medical field. They're yep. executives, heads of organizations, leaders, managers, et cetera. You know, if you have a team, let's say you have a team yeah. of 50, or even a team of five, right? Yep. And as you said, there's some psychological stressors. The pandemic was a psychological stressor. I think mm-hmm. for some people, being at home with their two-year-olds that they usually sent to daycare was a psychological yes. stressor. <laughs> yes, or so, a high school kid. <laughs> yeah, so are there, you know, I'm sure you talk about this a bit in your book, but are there two or three things that, you know, a manager, this is, you know, one of my pet peeves is that I think we went into COVID with these assumptions that, you know, if you're a manager, you automatically have the skill set huh. to coach, right? Or well, to counsel or, oh you know boy. what I mean? Like, no way. Yeah. There's no, no. no wonder we had so much breakdown yeah. going on, right? No, no. And, and we don't want managers to turn into coaches or counselors. So there, there's a certain role for them. But I think to your point, Fran. Okay. I that- tr- usually don't interrupt my guests, but I, that's, a, that's a drum roll. So if we've got a little drum roll with a, with a, 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 a tambourine, okay. I want you to restate what you just said. The doctor said that we don't want our managers to coach or provide counseling. However, we do want to train our leaders to be equipped so that they know how to support the health and well-being of their teams. And why should they not have to do that? The people on our teams are in an uneven position. And when we go into a conversation as a counselor, we could potentially be putting our team in an uncomfortable position. And really, it's it's not our role to try to elicit personal health information. Not only is it not our role, but it could come across as coercive and could land you in the human resource department. So it, it's not to say that managers need to, you know, can wipe their hands of their responsibility. There's plenty that they can do. And friend, I'll go back to what I think was the first part of the question is, what can managers do in regards to peer support on their team? So organizations might have organization-wide programs like this psychological first aid training. A manager, if they know that exists, they should send someone on their team to go get trained. A more simple act that doesn't take any additional uh, training is just to acknowledge and applaud or celebrate when you find out that two people on the team are supporting each other's health and well-being. Right? All we have to do as a leader is recognize what's going right. And if what's going right is that two people on the team are supporting each other and it helps their health and well being, well, guess what? When the manager says something or celebrates it, others on the team will, will acknowledge it and they'll want to do the same. And then, Fran, there's everything in between. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's, you've spoke volumes just because you have to have a cheerleader. You have to have someone that's the champion. You have to have someone who's supporting, but they don't necessarily have to be the expert in charge in that particular role. And in in the seat that I sit in, as we've designed and rolled out and implemented, you know, programs across all kinds of organizations, so often HR 
is asked to, you know, be the expert to to implement or to uh, prescribe, um, describe, create, curate, and that's really not their role. They're not in that. They haven't been given this the skill set to be able to do that. Yeah. Neither have you know leaders or executives. Just because you're managing and leading an organization doesn't mean you can really do that for people and personnel. So I think that um, that point that you just made is a very, very powerful one. Well, I, I hope, I think you're going to like a cure for the common company because it's for, for that very reason that the HR department and the leaders are not equipped. They don't have to be experts, but you at least need to have a roadmap to, to know your part of the solution. Excellent. So can we get into that a little bit? Let's talk a little bit about the roadmap. Um, I love the way you describe that, the roadmap in terms of, you know, curating this this culture of well-being. What does that actually look like? Well, Fran, I break it down into six building blocks, and I've already shared one of them, and that is peer support. The other five, well, we're going to remember all six of them by using the phrase plan for success. And if our listeners plan for success, they will be able to create a well-being culture in their workplace. So the PM plan stands for peer support. The L in plan stands for leadership engagement. Now, that just doesn't mean leadership support. That means that the leaders have a specific role other than verbally saying we support well-being. The N in plan stands for norms. Norms are the expected behavior of a group of people. You pick any workplace and there are norms, both good and bad. So in a hospital, before we go in to see a patient, the norm is to wash our hands. And when we walk out of the patient room, the norm is to wash your hands again. Mm -hmm. So the fourth building block is for the first S in success, and that's shared values. Shared values are values that both the employer and the employees share. It sounds kind of obvious, but most organizations, they have core values. And that's like the C-suite or the board of directors telling everybody else, this is what we value. And Mm -hmm. the big gap there is that when core values are handed down, they usually don't represent the value of employee health and well-being. The fifth building block, the two Cs in success, stands for culture connection points. These are the nudges, the influences that uh, that we're on the receiving end all day, every day at work that shape our health for good or for bad. And the last S in success, our sixth building block is social climate. How we feel about the people we work with and how we feel about the organization in which we work. Do we feel like we're part of the team? Do we feel like we're working in an upbeat environment and that we're all rowing in the same uh, same boat or same direction to get to the goal together? Those are the six building blocks that I think make a difference and are often overlooked in most company strategies. Okay. I love that. Now, so let's dissect that a little bit because I think that you've given a lot of juiciness, I like to say, yeah. um, and some great tips that that folks can start with. And sometimes it's the low-hanging fruit, you know, as opposed to how to eat an elephant, you know, one bite at a time. <laughs> so for those who are listening that are like, oh my gosh, you know, we're nowhere near that. Where do we even start? I like the the point that you made around norms because every organization yeah. does have a set of principles they're already being guided by. Mm-hmm. So how could uh, perhaps uh, a company head or a team lead start with perhaps norms yeah. to kind of get them rowing in the right direction and getting their team going in the right direction. 
Fran, I lead some workshops, and one of the more common exercises we do is about how to shape norms. We need to start with a discussion with our team. And the discussion with our team is, hey, what does well-being mean to you? And what would we all like to see happen for our team that would give us a healthier day? Uh, By the way, one of the more common answers is a little more work-life balance. So once you're able to have that conversation, which doesn't happen, well, it happens more easily for some teams when there's a lot of trust. For other teams, they first have to get to the point where they're comfortable with each other. But assuming that there's a high level of trust and there's uh, an ability to have a candid conversation about what well-being means to each person on the team, then you can use different building blocks to help shape that norm. So. For example, I mentioned the culture connection points, these nudges that we might be getting all day. If the desired norm on the team is to walk at lunchtime instead of sitting at your desk and doing uh, emails, then we need to figure out how to put some nudges in place. And perhaps what that means for one team is that the administrative assistant. Um, blocks out everybody's calendar from 12 to 12.30 so that no one across the team or across the entire organization can take that time away. It's already blocked off. for for the So that's a, a nudge. It's almost like a default. Okay, the default is I'm not available and now it's yeah. time to walk. Another building block, peer support could serve as well. We could choose someone on the team to walk with and we could rotate every day. So there's accountability partners. So there's two building blocks I've just used and, and it goes on like that. Yeah. I like that. I like that a lot. I like the fact, the fact that again, you're giving them um, some, I think some incremental shifts Mm -hmm. to make. So it doesn't seem like a behemoth. And we saw a lot of that, I think, happen during the pandemic, right? Like, I think it was um, one of the financial, big financial groups. It was either Citigroup or or Chase that um, they decided, the CEO decided that there would be no more Zoom meetings on Friday. And so that was an absolute. Yeah. And it worked because we were burning out so much. Yeah. I'm so curious, you know, based on the organizations you've worked with and the companies, some of the companies you impact, how do you see that? trend shaping up? Do you see organizations still being willing to make some, you know, pretty line in the sand decisions around well-being and making sure they support people to prevent burnout now that we're coming post-pandemic? Well, I would say what I'm seeing, the vast majority of employers and leaders recognize that this problem is not over. It's far from over, and they are trying their best to um, accommodate the individual needs of the people on on their team and in their organization. Yeah, I, I think people realize that Zoom was um, and other televideo conference platforms are good to a point, but like anything else, um, there comes a, a point where it can harm the health and well-being. And so, uh, Fran, I guess the the so to wrap up your question is, yes, there are some leaders or most who are still putting lines in the sand, but things are slipping a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would say that I would say on the other end, I see that folks are trying to go back to kind of the way we were in the sense that it's no longer an issue. I think it was um, 
DOD issued the um, the uh, uh, whatever you call it legislation just yesterday that reversed all of the the practices we had in place for COVID. Right. So now it's almost like it. we're getting back to normal, everybody. We're getting yeah. back to normal. And I think the scary piece with that um, mindset it is, is that, you know, normal was fine pre-COVID. And, you know, we were into burnout. We were into yeah. collapses and the challenges that we had. And so, yeah. you know, how do we navigate around that? Yeah. So as we kind of turn the corner in the conversation, um, and I think we've talked a little bit about your book, obviously, and some of the facets that organizational um, leaders should be thinking about. Would you? Are there two or three mindset shifts that you think would be fantastic for um, leaders, managers, individuals to have in mind as they think about shaping a well-being culture? You know, what are the ideals that you like to see when you're working with that organization? Well, on top of the six building blocks, uh, the mind shift is really about thinking through the individual as a person and less so as an employee. You have six people on your team, guess what? They have six different well-being journeys. And just because the organization is putting together a lunch and learn on how to choose low-sodium foods doesn't mean that that's going to help everybody on your team. And, and frankly, in the workday, most employees are probably more greatly affected by the relationships around them than by the specific food that they had for lunch that day. And so one mind shift is thinking about people as individuals. A second mind shift for leaders is recognizing that we have a tremendous amount of impact on the well-being of the people we lead. Like it or not, 70% of employees say that their manager has a huge impact on their mental health. And we have to appreciate that or else we're going to probably uh, not purposefully negatively impact the well-being of the people we leave. So there's two mind shifts. I'd say the third one, Fran, is just for leaders to take a breath. Just take a breath and slow down. We're all working too quickly. You know, we can't have a priority list of 10 things. Otherwise, nothing is a priority. You need to slow <laughs> down, focus. That'll make us better people to be around and better leaders. And we'll probably be better capable of supporting everybody else's well-being, including our own. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I think two things that you mentioned really resonate with me is that, you know, really take time for yourself. Your own self-care is so very important and it, you can't lead anybody and you can't be successful for anyone if you're not doing it for yourself. And people aren't fooled, right? Like, yeah. you're not fooled. Like, you know, I started my career in in, in this business on aerobics and fitness classes. Yeah. And I always said, you know, you can't fool anybody in your class if you come in and you're, you know, barely going through the moves yourself. I mean, I know it's a whole different mentality in terms of how, you know, classes are performed today. So I'm not getting on anybody who's a group exercise leader today, but back in the day, I will say, if you didn't lead, if you didn't do 80% of yeah. that class with the class, most of them thought, okay, you can't really do it. So you really do need to walk the walk. I think the other piece is that um, you're right. We do have a huge impact on the teams that we lead and they watch what we're doing just as well. So you you really can't coach someone through and support someone else's journey on well-being if you're not really um, taking care of your own and, yeah. and managing your own. It's a huge piece of it. 
people right. really look to you as an example. And I think, you know, when we go into organizations, I know, and, and start up new programs, we always ask, is there a cheerleader or is there someone from leadership that is willing to mm-hmm. be a part of this initiative? That's and right. that's so important because people need to see that. Wouldn't you agree? Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, I, I think we need leaders as role models and we need leaders to be role models in a number of different ways. Yes, mm-hmm. they can be a cheerleader, but if they don't practice what they're apparently preaching, then we got a problem. We got a disconnect. I find this so important that there's a call out box in most of the chapters called put your own mask on first, just like, you know, in the airplanes, put your, yeah. because each of these building blocks, although the book was written so that leaders and HR professionals could help shape the well-being culture on their teams and across their organization, we also have to recognize that part of that is helping yourself. So I've turned the building blocks around so that the reader can apply it to themselves as well. I love that. So as we're kind of winding our conversation down, I would love for you to give our listeners some perspective on the cost of getting it wrong right? Mm. Like so often we talk about those that are getting it right and what that looks like and ideally, but what is the ultimate cost, would you say, Dr. Richard Safer, on organizations who are getting it wrong and not making well-being an imperative? Yeah. At the most extreme level, you will not have a team left. People will leave. And we saw huge um, changes, obviously, during the last two and a half years of of workforce shifts. Employees will leave to find a team and an organization that shows more support for their health and well-being, and you will be left with very few people. Now, for those of your listeners who are at the higher end of the organization, if you're seeing particular pockets of your company have more vacancies than others, then please consider whether or not it's the leader or leaders in that part of the organization who are a major contributor to the vacancies. And it's not that they're bad people. It's more likely that they're unaware of how they're negatively impacting the health and well-being of the people they lead. And they just need some training. Just like they get training in customer service and and finance, they need some training on how to lead with well-being. Well said. I love that. That's a great place to kind of close up. I know... During COVID, we had a a huge organization that we were tasked and uh, had the honor to work with. They have 350,000 employees. Wow. And about 10,000 leaders. And the leaders were each responsible for anywhere from 500 to 1,000 individuals on their teams. And, you know, I applauded them, first of all, for even realizing that they needed to find ways to support the leaders. And we set up a whole program for the leaders that was digital and all this kind of stuff. But one of the things that you just said that really echoes is that if they don't know how to take care of themselves, and most times, quite frankly, I feel people who are hard charged are oftentimes incredibly successful, very driven, um, and are, are tasked and called on to do a lot maybe they don't mean not to, and maybe it's not that they don't know how to, but it's almost like that's been lost. That whole uh, self-care, self-awareness, well-being, all of that's been lost because they're so busy being successful and being successful for other people. So you're absolutely right. They've got to be taken care of first. So what's next on the horizon for you? Any passion projects for 2023 you're looking forward to most? 
Well, uh, yes, <laughs> I, I don't sit still too too often. I do have a full time job at Hopkins, so I consider this my hobby. Some people sew. <laughs> I <laughs> advance my professional interests, and my intent is to create a training program for people in the health promotion space, so that they can go in and help leaders create that well being culture on their teams and in their workplace. Um, we already have a training program for managers and, and leaders. It's uh, at creatingawellbeingculture.com. But the mm-hmm. next step is to really help other people in our space, Fran, so that we are, um, we are well equipped to go in and, and do that work alongside them. Yeah. Well, I think that's fantastic. And it's well needed. Well, well needed. So keep up the great work. It has been an absolute pleasure to have this conversation with you. I think that your book is a delight and very important for many to have. So if you missed it, it's called A Cure for the Common Company, a well-being prescription for a happier, healthier, and more resilient workforce. Dr. Richard Schaefer of, of John Hopkins, it's been a fantastic pleasure to have this quick conversation with you. And I look forward to welcome you back for your ne- with your next book or once you get this program <laughs> launched. <laughs> no pressure, no pressure, no pressure. Yeah. <laughs> I'll see you next decade, Fran. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds good. And thank you again for joining us for the Optimized Workplace. Remember, it's one mini monumental shift at a time that can make the biggest impact in your life. I'm Fran Dean Bishop. It's been a pleasure to have you with us. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of The Optimized Workplace. For more insights and resources, visit theoptimizedworkplace.co. If you enjoyed this episode, please help spread the word and share with those who will enjoy it as well. See you soon.